Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We are located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we want to be a community of faithfully present people with God, self, and others. We hope that this encourages you to do the same wherever you are. And thanks for joining us. Welcome to Redemption. Glad you're here today. <laughs> and uh, hey, so my name's Alex. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm grateful to be walking through this scripture with you this morning. Um, so one of my primary roles here in our church is to, is to preach the gospel uh, week by week. It's what the Bible would refer to in, when you see the word exhort show up, the exhortation. That's what we tend to call the sermon today in our modern language. And so that's uh, one of my primary roles in our church. And so week by week, I go into my study, um, I close the door, I sit down at my desk, and I just print out the text. I don't even, I, I don't sit with the Bible, I just print it out on a piece of paper uh, because I'll start just digging around and start looking in other places. Some of you are like that too, like, oh, there's a cross reference. And so anyway, I print it out, I read it over and over again, and I just start making notes on that piece of paper. And then after Reading it about 20 times, I'll then start turning toward uh, lexicons and other lexical aids to help me understand the original languages in which the, the, the scriptures are written. And then turning to commentaries and Bible atlases and encyclopedias and academic journals and blah, blah, blah. And then I'll end up calling friends in church and be like, hey, what do you think about this? Or I'll call friends around the country and be like, hey, man, have you ever read this passage or studied this? And anyway, there's a lot that kind of goes into it. And when it comes to doing this week by week and start asking questions about like the historical setting, who's in power politically, where are we located on planet earth? Who's writing it? What's the occasion? What are the recipients like? Why is Paul or Peter or someone writing this particular letter to this particular people? What occasion you know, had arisen and so on? Asking all those historical questions are important, but then to start doing the other work, it's what's called hermeneutics to do this, this labor of seeking to understand what is it saying to us today? Because we're Christians, we believe that the scriptures are inspired by God for his people in all places at all times. That's what Christians believe about the scriptures. And so no, they're not necessarily written to us. They are written for us. Make sense? We weren't there in the first century, but we're here now and they are still preserved for us. And so in the uh, study this week, I was, I, my, my sermon calendar is planned throughout, throughout uh, Easter of next year because planning is good. And... Um, I was going to cover verses 4 to 25 today, but then in reading this week over and over again, I got stumped on just verse 4. So we're just going to do one verse today. So 10 words. But when God says 10 words, it's more than I could say or you could say or all of us or all creation could say throughout all of eternity, right? When God says something. So there's a lot jam-packed in Scripture. If you don't believe me, go back and read John 3.16 later today. It'll, you'll learn something new again. It just happens like that. So this week, we're going to do one verse. And so let me, um, I'd like to pray once more and um, really center myself and uh, yeah, and walk through this awesome, awesome verse today. <laughs> Father, thank you for our time together. We do come to you in the matchless name of Jesus our Lord. And so it's our prayer today that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are willing and able to obey and respond to you in joyful obedience. 
So Holy Spirit, do your work here and now. Please press all of dis- distractions out and aside for the next few minutes. Comfort us, guide us, instruct us. Help me to be present to you, Father, as I preach the gospel. Help me to be present to our people. I'm going to be so sensitive to your spirit. Thank you for all that you've done. As your people this morning sitting in stillness, it feels good to just be still and know that you're God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So as Ashley just read for us a minute ago, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Here it is. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. All right. First who? Who is scattered? Who is displaced? And why? Right? That's where we're at. We're in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Remember that the early church had grown by thousands and thousands of people. Right? Jesus had ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And then a few days later, he sent the Holy Spirit into the world, into the church. All who would call on Jesus' name would be saved. They would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the church begins to explode. Incredible growth. But it was also met with incredible hostility and opposition by Jewish authorities. Right? And so as the church was being persecuted, it continued to grow. Um, as it grew, uh, the church then had these, our apostles were no longer able to go about just preaching the word and praying and doing the daily work of pastoring the churches because they were being just, there was so much put on their shoulders. There was a lot of administrative work. There was a lot of needy people that had gathered together. And so their people were coming together, pooling their funds, their money, their resources, food, et cetera, taking care to, in order to take care of one another. The apostles were going, we don't have time to be able to do it all. We can't do it all. And so they decided, find seven men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of good reputations that can then step into this particular role, these administrative roles in the church. If you remember, there was one man in particular, Stephen was selected uh, in the, the early seven. Stephen, not long after taking up this new office in the church, began to do the very same things that the other apostles were doing. He was not one of the 12, but he started to do the same things. He started preaching with boldness, proclaiming Jesus. He started working signs and wonders, just like the other 12. And so now the Jewish authorities got word that there's another one out there doing this. And so they then set up a false trial, arranged false witnesses, and bring Stephen under criminal blasphemy charges. Stephen then goes before the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, and they ask him to give an account for what he's doing. He then takes the opportunity to preach the entire Old Testament in 50 some odd verses in Acts chapter seven. He walks all the way through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs and Solomon and on and King David. He gets all the way down to this very moment and then he confronts the Jews, the Jewish authorities right to their face and tells them, you need to repent of your sins. You're persecuting me the same way your fathers persecuted the prophets, right? And then it is in that moment They charge at him, they take up stones, they carry him outside the city and they go to put him to death by stoning. As he's being stoned to death, Stephen looks up into heaven, 
sees the glory of God. Remember this? Yeah, the beatific vision. Yeah. He sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He's caught up in complete worship, then begins to pray for those who are putting him to death. With a loud voice, he cries out, Father, don't hold this sin, or actually not Father, Jesus, don't hold this sin against them. Then he falls asleep. A Jewish euphemism because that's how we tend to think about death. If you're in Christ, we go to sleep <laughs> because we're going to wake up refreshed. So as he goes to sleep, as Stephen dies, the Bible notes that, that those that were putting Stephen to death had taken their coats off and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later become the apostle Paul. As Saul oversees the dying Stephen, his heart continues to just burn against Christ and the gospel. And so then as Stephen dies, he's carried off and given an honorable burial. But then Saul starts going from house church to house church, dragging off both men and women, tearing families apart and putting them in prison. That's Saul. Chapter eight, verse four now says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So who's the, what's this scattering? Those who were scattered. Who's scattered? Oh, it's the men and the women who Saul didn't actually, wasn't able to apprehend and then imprison. That they begin to scatter. And this is a common theme that you see throughout the Bible. This word scattered here, diaspora in, in, in the New Testament, it means literally like a, a farmer would sow seeds and scatter seeds. They're scattered. And this word has a, it shows up several times in the Old Testament and in the New. And so um, I was reading one essay from one of my professors this week. And he just, if you just want to think about different scatterings that you see in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve are scattered from the Garden of Eden. Uh, Cain and Abel, right? Cain puts Abel, kills Abel. Cain takes off and is scattered. Um, Noah and his family are scattered after the flood. Uh, then there's the rebels that scattered after the Tower of Babel. In Genesis uh, 11. And then there's uh, the Israelites, of course, that you read throughout the Old Testament. They're carried off into Babylon, Babylonian exile. If you want to read into, like, think Jeremiah, right? Okay, so there's some scatterings. But this is the first time that we see Christians being scattered in the New Testament. It's known as the diaspora. They're scattered like seeds. So why are the Christians being scattered? Why are they dispersing? because they're being persecuted and they're fleeing for their lives. So anthropologists, they talk uh, at great length about why peoples and cultures move where they take up residence. And sometimes it's called um, push-pull, okay? So if you think uh, voluntary and involuntary, to be pushed, involuntary, pull, a voluntary move. So if you see here, like we have a, here's a chart for you from an academic journal. This is so fun, huh? You're welcome. So in, in push, you see, this is why people leave. War, political persecution, abuse of power. They're endangered, human trafficking, women and children being exploited, natural disasters, poverty, on and on. These kinds of pushed out. Pull, basically seeking greener pastures. 
I desire to climb the ladder and make a better life for myself. That's why people move, push, pull. So in cases of push, it's involuntary. In case of pull, it's voluntary. Why does it matter? Here's why. Because they, they that we are talking about that decided to move, these men and women are not looking to climb the social ladder and get a few more square feet in their house, so to speak. This is involuntary. They, they're scattering, not because of a natural disaster, but because of the abusive power structures that are in place that threaten their own lives. And why are they scattering? It's not racism. Remember, it's Jews. They're all ethnically Jew, Jewish. So what is it? Oh, it's religious persecution over what they're saying about who the Messiah is and where salvation is found. That's the root of why the persecution is happening the way it is. And so these Christians are scattered like seeds. They're dispersed and they run 42 miles north to the region known as Samaria. They're the ones who survived terrible persecution. They left their homes and they fled for their lives. Men and women. On Thursday morning, I was reading and rereading this line again and again. And it struck me that as I then went and started consulting 20 some odd commentaries, I'm looking at what people have said throughout the centuries about this verse. No one pointed out something that was gripping me. No one pointed out the trauma that these early people must have been enduring. You see, like if you and I read this first, like, oh, now they were scattered and they went about preaching the word. You might think, oh, cool. People like decided to like, you know, they're in Southern California and go down to the beach and you invite people to your, you know, your young life event with a food truck and a band and a guy's going to play games and blah, blah, blah. And tell them, you might think, yeah, they're just out doing like normal kind of, you know, evangelism stuff. Nope. Nope. They're literally grabbing whatever they can in their house and running for their lives. And they finally stop running on foot 42 miles to the north to live in a region where they're not welcome. That's why this matters. And so I started thinking about going, gosh, I'm super into evangelism. If you're not a Christian today, I did come here with an event, a total agenda. I want to convert you to following Jesus. I really do. Like just cats out of the bag. I'm so down with that. I'm so down. Uh, so you sound like you're trying to win me to Jesus. Totally. I'm totally doing that. Not embarrassed. Not at all. All right. But I started thinking about these people in particular. And uh, I called my friend Michelle Furtado. She's a, she's a therapist here uh, uh, in our city. And she and I taught a class together last year on the theology of mental health. And so I, I called Michelle and I started asking her questions about survivor's trauma. And it was really an insightful conversation. Um, and so it, it, it sent me down this rabbit hole of reading and thinking more and pulling from the, you know, the, the library and thinking about where have I read about survivor's trauma? Where, where have our people actually heard of this? Um, if you remember uh, Ellie Weisel, Nobel Prize winner, wrote 
night about being imprisoned under Nazi Germany. Unbelievable. If you haven't read it, you have to do the hard soul work of just please read it. World history. I mean, this matters. So listen to what Ellie Weisel, as he describes what it's like to be a trauma, a true trauma survivor. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I'm condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Oh. Literary critics will point out right here in this passage in the book itself is where it's, it's the most powerful part of the book because he goes from describing Nazi Germany on the outside to what it feels like on the inside. To have his life feel like a gas chamber. Ugh. And you go, why are we talking about that? Why mention that? Because that's what's going on with these early Christians suffering intense religious persecution. Men and women dragged off into prison. But these men and women, they escaped. So I rang up Michelle and I was like, hey, can you talk to me about this? And she was like, actually, I'm on my self-care morning and I'm just sitting here. She has a self-care morning, everybody. Yeah. And uh, she's like, I'm sitting by a stack of books. I'd be happy to help. I was like, yes. And she talked to me about this survivor's trauma. And she said this, and then I asked her if I could quote her. <laughs> so I'll do that from time to time. So listen, she said this. The amount of mental and emotional strength that these men and women had together takes a significant amount of personal introspective work. This is awesome. They had to choose their purpose outside of their lived experience. They had to be so slow and mindful of how they were acting and interacting with others. They had to give themselves space to grieve, be mad, feel betrayed by God and others, feel pain, and then return to their why. That sounds like talking to a therapist, doesn't it? Like, wow, that blew my mind. Um, they had to choose their purpose outside of their lived experience. How many times have you had to do that? I got to choose my purpose outside of the lived experience. I've got to choose my purpose. I don't feel it. I'm not in worship on Sunday night or whatever. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and choose my purpose outside of what I'm presently enduring. That is so hard. And that's what faith feels like, really. It's one thing to feel faith 
in a sense, when we're worshiping together and the sun's out in Green Lake on Sunday morning, it's another when it's the darkest night of your soul. And going, I'm going to choose my purpose outside of my lived experience. It's a push situation. So these people are displaced as refugees over their faith in Jesus, and they are bound together, not only by their common suffering, but they're bound together by their common story and their savior. Like, how do we know that? How do we know? Oh, because the next thing it says, what they did, they were scattered and they leaned into their purpose outside of their present circumstance. What were they doing? The word says, it says they scattered in unwelcoming territory and were preaching, men and women, preaching, preaching what? The word. Men and women leave their home and they began to preach. That word is literally, uh, it's liter- in the Greek, it's to, to evangelize, meaning they share openly, boldly, the good news that God loves sinners. They're gonna go north and they're just gonna keep preaching good news. Unbelievable. They're doing the last thing that any of us might expect them to do. It is the least convenient and most life-giving experience in the world. They're now doing what Jesus instructed the apostles to do. Remember, go into all the world, make disciples. They're now doing what Stephen was doing. Now they're doing it and check it out. They're unnamed men and women. They're not professionally trained in seminaries like we tend to think about. These are normal men and women, bakers and farmers and blacksmiths taking off, running north with nothing but faith in Jesus to call their own and they're sharing the good news. (laughs) They're doing the thing I don't think I would naturally want to do. But they preach the word. Men and women They were not the most influential people. They were not savvy. They were not people that possessed loads of financial resources. Remember, they're the ones standing around needing someone to take care of their daily needs. They certainly don't have any political power. These are average men and women who begin to preach. They want in on leading other people to the Jesus that led them into this circumstance. Following Jesus made them homeless and persecuted unto death. And yet they're like, I still want you to meet him. Is Jesus a tyrant or a bad guy? Or is he trying to hurt us? Nope. He's here to give you eternal life. He's here to take your sins away. He's here to make you right with God. What would make someone preach good news on a bad day? Oh, it's real simple. 
the love of God. They're not just talking. They didn't go to Samaria to argue doctrine. They didn't go to Samaria to get a bigger backyard. They went to Samaria because the love of God had so captivated them that Jesus was not just a subject that they're studying. Jesus was the son of God who loved them and gave himself for them. What else would make you open your mouth and talk about a good Jesus in the worst moment? The fact that their eyes are fixed on the same Jesus that Stephen had his eyes fixed on. The son of God loves me. Amen? Wow. I can't imagine being that broken and that needy and that desperate and then going, you know what? I feel like telling somebody about the love of God right now. I I could find any excuse to not tell somebody about Jesus. Pick one, pick one. Um, It's not convenient. (laughs) Uh, What if they don't like what I have to say? Uh, What if they bring up pluralism or universalism or another religious idea and, you know, Judaism or Islam or, oh gosh, I hope they don't ask anything politically or whatever the thing you're like, oh, like I can think of a jillion reasons why to not tell someone good news. Oh, I know. I don't want to tell anybody about Jesus because it makes me blush. I don't want to tell anybody about Jesus because I honestly, I'm ashamed of him. When it comes down to it, I'm embarrassed But what we observe every week in the sacrament of communion is a God who's not embarrassed to call you his own. He's not ashamed of you. He's not disappointed in you. He doesn't look at the floor when you talk to him and kind of get awkward. God's not ashamed of you. God's not annoyed by you. God sees all the wrong turns you've ever made and all the quirks about you and loves you as you are. He's not ashamed of you. And as often as you eat and drink of this cup, you remember him. And as you do so, you grow less and less embarrassed by him and more and more pleased in the God who loved you and gave himself for you. Isn't that good news? That as we sit in the love of God, we fall out of love with the world. And it doesn't mean that we resent the world or hate the world or critique the world or nitpick the world. It just means we fell in love with someone else. The one who made us, the one who owns us, the one who desires us. So what makes them preach good news on the bad day? It's the love of God. You remember the song, Jesus Loves Me? Of course you do. Let the theology of Jesus loves me just blow your mind. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin and let his gentle child come in. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad. Even though it makes him sad. Yes, Jesus loves me. What else would make you open your mouth and talk about Jesus in this awful circumstance? I can't think of anything greater than just the fact that they were caught up in the reality of the love of God for them. I don't know if anybody told you this week, but in case they didn't, and in case you don't hear it until next Sunday, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. 
Jesus loves you. He's not annoyed by you or tired of you. Jesus loves you, church. Let's be present to one another this week and remind one another often, hey, Jesus loves you. Oh, and by the way, these average men and women (laughs) who go unnamed end up being kind of the heroes. I mean, of course, we've got Jesus, capital H, hero, I know. But they end up being the heroes to who? To the very man that put them on the run. Saul was going house to house, persecuting them, right? Right? That's Acts chapter eight. But then what happens here? Oh, you turn the page. Saul ravages the church, chapter eight. The conversion of Saul. <laughs> uh, murderer, church planter. What? <laughs> so these men and women who he displaced, who he put on the run, bound together, healed together, pro- proclaimed the gospel together, they preached the good news together. Now he, they become forerunners and examples. Later, Saul's gonna end up imprisoned like the people he imprisoned. And what's he gonna do in Philippi? Oh, he's gonna sing in jail. And he's actually gonna become an evangelist inside jail. He's gonna start leading. They'll lock him up for preaching Jesus and then he's gonna lead the jailer to Jesus. (laughs) This is awesome. This is awesome. So look at what Paul says later in 2 Timothy, as he instructs Timothy. 30 years after Saul converts. Look at what he tells Timothy. Preach the word. Evangelize. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. What does that say? Preach when? Out of season? You know when it's out of season? When it's not receptive, when it's not welcome, when it's not great and there's not a lot of, it feels like it's not working. Paul goes, do it then. Do it then. Keep doing it. Even if they roll their eyes, even if they mock you, even if they go against you, keep going. Preach the word in season and out of season. Exhort one another. Be sober-minded and do the work of an evangelist. You see, the work of an evangelist is not just confined to a pulpit on a Sunday morning for one person. That is so sad if you get opt out of the call and the opportunity that you get to do week in and week out as an evangelist out of season. Listen to this last thing I'll read to you because these men and women served as examples. It comes from uh, 2 Corinthians the end of chapter 11. Let me see here. What did I write down? 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Listen to this. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors and far more imprisonments. This is Paul. Countless beatings. Often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. In Acts, we'll read about when Paul was stoned. They thought he was dead, but he crawls out from under a pile of rocks. And what's he do? (laughs) He goes right back into the city and starts preaching the word again. It's like, you just can't get rid of him. This is awesome. This is good. Oh, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Remember reading that? He's hanging on to a piece of driftwood and freezing a GNC overnight. And he's got nothing to cling to except Jesus and a block of wood. And he can't wait to wash up on shore. Why? Because he's going to tell somebody else that Jesus loves him. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers and toil and hardship, many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and on and on it goes. Where did Saul learn to endure these unnamed men and women who he put on the run, who moved north in spite of their circumstance, chose their purpose, and faithfully preached the word? So just very practically, I'll ask you three questions. Are you choosing your purpose outside of your circumstance? Do you know that Jesus loves you? Who are you going to tell the good news to this week? Are you choosing your purpose outside of your circumstance? Do you know that Jesus loves you? Who are you going to tell the good news to this week? Thanks again for joining us. If you want more information about our church or would like to come visit us on a Sunday, go to redemptionseattle.com.